Welcome tonight. Glad to be here with you and uh, very thankful to uh, all of y'all for having us in the house and for Pastor Ron for allowing me to come and share. Tonight I'm going to be talking to you about the Festival of Tabernacles and the uh, Jewish perspective on tabernacles, how it points to Messiah and its relevance to us as believers and, uh, and Messiah Yeshua today. By the way, uh, I, I call uh, Jesus by his Hebrew name Yeshua, so it's more, it's really uh, more habit than anything else. Uh, so if you hear me say Yeshua, just know I'm talking about the Messiah. And I'm blessed to see in your sanctuary that you have a portion of the Shema uh, on the on the uh, the wall back there. I'm not sure if y'all were familiar with that, but the Lord in that verse there in Matthew is quoting uh, the principal prayer in Judaism, which is called the Shema, which uh, begins Shema Yisrael Adonai Elochenu Adonai Echad. That part is the Ve'ahafta part, which says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself." It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, and also Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. That's wonderful. Tonight, I want to talk about tabernacles and the significance of this. And what makes it so wonderful is that actually, right at this moment, uh, as the sun is getting ready to set here in probably about another hour or so, actually begins the festival of tabernacles, or as we say in Hebrew, the festival of Sukkot. The festival of Sukkot. It's S-U-K-K-O-T is the transliterated version. It's a very special time. This is called the season of our joy, the season of our joy. And in fact, the word of God commands the, uh, his people to be exceedingly joyful during this time. And we're going to find out why it is such a joyful feast and why we as believers can take a little bit of ownership anyway. I happen to believe that we can take a whole lot of ownership of the feast. And we can take some ownership of this and be joyful as well. But I'm going to start out by giving you all the different names that you'll hear uh, the Feast of Tabernacles referred to. So the most common uh, English one is the Feast of Tabernacles. The next would be the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. You know, like just like a, like a booth you might see at a convention or a little hut or something like that. Um, the feast of ingathering would be another English uh, word or English phrase for this feast. In Hebrew, that's Hag Ha'asif. Hag Ha'asif. It's the feast of ingathering, and the reason for that is because it has an agricultural significance. In that, at this time, uh, the harvest is begin to brought in. That's very significant, actually. This is the feast of harvest. It's the feast of ingathering. It's also been called the feast of nations. The Feast of Nations, because at this feast in particular, more than any other feast, it's been understood that this points to not only uh, the harvest or the ingathering of Israel, but also the ingathering of the nations. This is very much a messianic feast, and we'll talk about that. And uh, you'll find in the writings of Josephus and other uh, Jewish writings that this feast is sometimes just called the feast, because it's the greatest of all feasts. It's, it surpasses every one of them. And so uh, sometimes you're reading historical works. It just says simply the feast. It is said uh, that this is to be called the Zeman Semchat which is the season of our joy. And that is based on Psalms 126 and verse 5. This verse is often quoted during this season where it says, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who sow in tears will reap in songs of joy. 
Now, this is the significance of that. I'm going to tonight, I want to as we talk about tabernacles, I want to kind of give you a little overview about the feast. But uh, we've just come out of uh, 40 days of, of Teshuvah uh, in the Messianic world and the Jewish world as well. It's called uh, Teshuvah, returning or turning back. Teshuvah is where we get our idea uh, in English of repentance. Uh, you probably know that repentance doesn't mean that you're simply sorry about your sin, but it means that you turn from one direction to the, the path of the Lord. In fact, it talks about in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2 and verse 3, I believe it is, that the Lord will lead us back to His paths, the, back to His way of doing things. And so Teshuvah... Or repentance is about understanding that we're on the wrong path, that we're going our own way, that we're following our own ideas, and we need to turn and turn back to the Lord. And so beginning uh, during the Hebrew month of Elul, uh, all the way up to the feast of Yom Kippur, is known as the 40 days of Teshuvah, the 40 days of returning to the Lord. And it's a very, um, it's a, it's a, it's, kind of a joyful time, but it's also a very solemn time because it's about introspection, about looking in to your own heart and making that decision, you know, where am I? Am I it's about spiritual house cleaning. Uh, and from a Jewish point of view, uh, who don't yet, those who don't yet know Messiah, they're really doing everything they can to put their life in order again uh, in order to come into the Lord's favor. Maybe they have ought against a brother or a sister or what have you. And so in Judaism, it teaches that if you have uh, ought against your brother, if you have unforgiveness towards your brother, or if you know somebody has unforgiveness towards you, then you're to make amends to them, that you're, go, you're to actually go and, and uh, ask them for forgiveness and extend a right hand of fellowship. Otherwise, the Lord is not able to forgive you. Now, that comes from Jewish thought. How many of you remember that's exactly what Messiah thought as well? So there's this time that you might say that there's kind of a working in the Jewish mind of, of, of putting their life in order. But once Yom Kippur comes and goes, it's understood that the Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, has pardoned and forgiven. And now they can go into their season of joy. That's why the scripture is quoted that those who sow in tears, tears of repentance, shall reap with songs of joy. How I many you know, as we as believers can say, we sowed some tears when we came to the Lord. Many of us sowed tears of repentance. I know that my personal testimony and others' testimonies, they come down front and, and we soak the carpet sometimes with our tears of repentance. But once that repentance has come and we know that the Lord has forgiven us, then we can reap with songs of joy. Amen? And so it's a great and, and powerful time. This takes place on the Hebrew calendar during the month of what's called Tishri which is Tishri, uh, the 15th day through the 21st day. This is the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. And I think that's significant because, uh, of course, seven speaks of perfection, speaks of completion. And this festival of completion, this festival of perfection, takes place during the seventh month. God is always uh, a God of pattern, by the way. I think that you'll find that to be true. You can look at the patterns of God beginning in Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And if you begin to identify his pattern, you'll begin to identify his way of doing things. That's why I think studying the feast is so important, because he has initiated or set up for us a pattern that shows us what he has done, what he's doing now, and what he's going to do in the future. Amen? So, this is, uh, by the way, not a feast of the Jews. 
That's, I think that's very important for us to understand as believers. This is not a Jewish feast. This is it's improper to say this is a festival of the Jews, in fact, because this is a festival of God. The Lord's the scripture says that these are my feasts. These are my appointed times. In fact, uh, historians believe that the Puritans were some of the uh, some of the very early messianic believers. And the the festival that we have in America known as Thanksgiving actually stemmed from the Puritan understanding of Sukkot, of tabernacles. So uh, our modern day Thanksgiving festival, uh, many historians believe, was the Puritans way of initiating a type of Sukkot here in America. The Hebrew word for feast, by the way, and I just want to cover this, I think it's important. The Hebrew word for feast is moedim, moedim. You can write that in English, you spell it M-O-E-D-I-M, moedim. A moedim, uh, when we hear the word feast, we think sometimes it means eating a lot of food. And we Jews like to eat, okay, there's no doubt about that. And out of all of our festivals, we always have food, okay, Except for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the toughest festival for a Jew because it's a day of fasting. But all the other feasts, you know, we eat. But the word feast is in the scripture doesn't really refer to food, although food is often associated with these times. The word is actually Mo'adim. And a Mo'adim is an appointed time. It's an appointed time. In other words, the Lord is saying, I have an appointment. I have a spot on my calendar whereby I purpose to meet with man and to uh, come in and fellowship with them. And so as I've often taught our congregation that I don't know about you, but if God says I have an appointment to meet you next Tuesday at three o'clock, I'm probably not going to reschedule that appointment. I'm probably going to make that appointment. And so this is a Moadim. This is an appointed time. OK, I think that's important. And uh, finally, we'll, we're getting ready to read from Leviticus chapter 23. Um, in fact, you can go ahead and start turning there to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. This is actually the eight feast on God's uh, list of festivals. Um, and I say eight because there are actually eight feasts listed in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. So we'll turn there. The... Um, the first feast that's listed, you'll notice if you look at Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 1, the first feast that is mentioned, or he talks about the appointed feast, he talks and he begins in verse 3 by saying that the first festival that's listed is the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. So we actually begin the study of the feast with the Sabbath. That's the first feast, and it's a, it's a weekly festival for um, well, I believe for the people of God, but um, some might say, you know, especially for the Jews, of course. But every week, every seventh day, there's a festival. It's kind of cool, you know. You, you get a party every seventh day, you know. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, our congregation being Messianic, we do things a little bit different than a traditional church. We really don't have a, uh, we don't celebrate Easter in the traditional way. We don't celebrate Christmas in the traditional way. We have, uh, we incorporate uh, the festivals of the Lord and some other festivals. And somebody was talking to me about that one time and they said, well, you know, my gosh, you know, we miss some of those feasts. It's like, well, actually we have like 14 festivals we celebrate. We're the most party in the congregation. I'm getting kind of worn out, in fact, about all the parties we have. Praise the Lord. Let's begin reading in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 33. 
you're there, say amen. All right, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly, do no regular work. For seven days, present offerings made to the Lord by fire. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is the closing assembly, do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing offerings made to the Lord by fire. The burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those uh, for the Lord's Sabbath and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the free will offerings you are to give to the Lord. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day also is a day of rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native boards and Israelites are to live in booths. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses announced it to the Israelites, the appointed feast of the Lord. So we see here uh, this teaching about the, the feast from Scripture about keeping Sukkot. What's interesting to note, by the way, is that the Lord says this is the seven-day festival. You're not supposed to work on the first day. And then on the eighth day, you're not you're also not supposed to work. So it seems a little confusing. I thought you said this was a seven day festival. Then there's an extra eighth day. Well, all of this is God's way of kind of getting our attention. Remember, I said this is the eighth feast. So it's the it's number eight on the list. The number eight traditionally is understood in Scripture as referring to new beginnings. If you have seven as the number of perfection, the number eight is a new beginning number. That's how it's been traditionally understood. And so you here you have the, the eighth feast, a new beginning feast, seven days, a day, seven representing completion and perfection, and then an, an extra day, the eighth day, which in, in Hebrew is called Shemini Atzeret, which is the new beginnings day. Now, why is this all important and critical about this feast is because this festival is all about God's completion, his perfection and bringing things into completion and the new beginning, the new, the new millennial reign of Messiah. In fact, the purpose of Sukkot is stated as this, to commemorate the shelter that Adonai or God provided Israel in the wilderness. This refers, by the way, both to the temporary shelters that they lived in, the tents, and to the cloud of glory that covered them for 40 years. You remember the cloud of glory, cloud by day, fire by night? This refers to their their shelters, but it also refers to the fact that God was covering them in the desert. And what he's wanting us to know about this feast and what the Jewish people understand is that there was a day during the Exodus where I covered you and where you dwelt with me. And there is coming a day in the new millennial reign when I will cover you yet again and you will dwell with me yet again. In the beginning, I covered you in the desert, and in the end, I'll cover you in the new Garden of Eden and the new Jerusalem. And the Jewish people understand that God is a God of pattern. If he covered us before, he's going to cover us again. And so this is to remember the fact that God is a covering God, that he's a dwelling God, and that his ultimate purpose and his ultimate passion is to dwell with his people. 
That is God's power in his his position. It says here in the art scroll Humash, I wrote this uh, wrote this down. It says that Sukkot is a time to rejoice in God's concern for our our well-being. Sukkot is a time to rejoice in God's concern for our well-being. In other words, we have a God who's not just far off and distant, but he's a God who says, I'm I'm concerned about you to the extent that I'm willing to come down and make my dwelling with you and cover you and shelter you. Some might say also that we have a temporary tabernacle that we are walking around and breathing in right now. And there'll come a day when this temporary tabernacle will be gone and there'll be a tabernacle come from heaven, glorified body, not made by anything natural, but made supernatural, not made by anything corruptible, but incorruptible. And we shall look like him in the glory. Amen. And so we walk around in a tabernacle now in a temporary dwelling, but there will come a day when we will permanently dwell in a new dwelling with him forever. And so also Sukkot is the culmination. We touched about this a little bit earlier of the Tishri process of repentance and the Kippur process of atonement. So what it points to in the reality that peace, joy, harvest, and dwelling with Adonai, with God, is the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance is peace, joy, it's, it's harvest, and it's dwelling with God. That's the fruit of repentance. And so this whole process of teshuva, this this understanding that that we have to come to a time. Yes, Messiah died for us and there's blood there. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. We have to appropriate that blood and put it and apply it to our hearts. And sometimes that means that that coming to repentance, we have to make things right. We have to go and uh, talk to some people and, and, and make things make things uh, right again. Maybe we have to make amends with mom and dad, sister and brother. Our, our neighbor, what have you. I remember the testimony of one Messianic uh, gentleman who said that, that the Lord just reminded him of all the days when he was in college, how he used to steal for fun from different places, different little stores in his college town. And he said, I felt the conviction of the Ruach HaKodesh, of the Holy Spirit. And I went to that town and I went to, to, the, to the proprietor of the various stores and I told him, you know, what I had done way back then that I've come to know the Lord. And uh, the, the by he, you know, he's a messianic believer, so he follows the Torah. And he said, the word of God says that when a when a thief steals, that he should repay what he stole plus 20 percent. So he said, if you'll kindly tell me the value of the thing that I stole, I would like to add 20 percent to it. And he did that. And he said, you know, it was such a feeling of, you know, this is the right thing to do. And at the same time, it was an incredible witness to the storekeepers, to the managers, to the owners, as they're seeing the fruit of repentance come. And isn't that awesome? May we may may Adonai uh, teach us all to do just that. Well, I want to uh, talk about the reality of Sukkot being a messianic kingdom feast. And to do that, I've got to kind of quickly take us through the cycle of the feast. And, and hopefully by doing that, you'll understand the, the critical importance of, of why this cycle of feasting is so wonderful. The reason I like celebrating the feast, the reason I personally believe that every believer should at least have a knowledge of the feast, if not celebrate them, is because uh, throughout the year we are our focus is kept on the Lord, and we are completely and totally and always constantly reminded of what the Lord has done, what He's doing now, and what He's going to do in the future. And I don't think that uh, you know we have wonderful feasts that uh, have developed and 
and Christianity and so forth. But I don't think uh, anything quite compares to what the Lord has done for us. So let's go over these right quick. I'm going to give you kind of a review and feel free. I encourage you to read through Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus is not always the most favorite book for people to read. You know, it's, it's, you know, some people said it helps them, you know, kind of get ready for bed at night. But, you know, you can, I'll just kind of give you an overview of uh, Leviticus chapter 23 and what it means. The, the Feast of Passover, also known as Pesach, speaks of redemption. That's our entryway into the kingdom. The Lamb of God slain. The Lamb of God was slain. And as a result, we were redeemed. The Passover speaks of redemption. The Pharaoh, who represents the, the devil, we've been re, we've been purchased back from under his his cruel slavery, and now we're no longer a slave to Pharaoh. We're not on our own. We're now a slave to God. We now are a servant of the Most High God. But God doesn't leave us as a slave. God's grace says, "You're not a I, yes. Technically, you're my slave. You're my servant. But I'm going to elevate you to the realm of sonship." the kingship, and the priesthood. God's a awesome God. So he brings us to him during Passover and he redeems us the blood of the Lamb. By the way, the book of Joel in the King James Version anyway, chapter 2, it talks about that and I'm going to give you the former and the latter rain in the first month. Now, uh, I think it's a great revelation, so I just want to share it with you. It's not in my notes, but the uh, the feast of the spring, there's... Four feasts in the spring, and it's, they're called the former rain feasts. The feast in the fall are called the latter rain feasts. Okay, uh, the feast of Passover, where Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, took place in the month of Nisan or Abib. It changed names in scripture, uh, Abib or Nisan, and it's the first month on the Hebrew calendar. Now, Messiah went to the cross and spilled out his blood to be the Lamb of God who would purchase our redemption and to be the goat of God, you might say, to purchase our atonement. Now, redemption is spoken of at Passover. Atonement is spoken of at Yom Kippur. But the prophet said, I'm going to give you the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. In other words, my the, the, I'm going to, the Lord said, I'm going to give you redemption and atonement in one sacrifice in the first month. And so uh, Passover speaks of our redemption. The Feast of Pentecost, or what's called in Hebrew uh, Shavuot, is uh, speaking of the Ketubah. Uh, now, Ketubah in Hebrew is a betrothal contract. We don't have this in our culture, or maybe we do to a little bit, but in Hebrew culture, when a man proposes to a woman to be married, they uh, have a contract that they uh, they write as a matter of tradition amongst one another. And in, in essence, it says, what's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. And they share a cup of wine over the contract. At that moment, they are married. Now, they're not they haven't consummated their marriage, but they're married. They're as good as married. Now, the, the husband would go to his father's house. And prepare a place for his bride. I don't have time to get into all that, but it's, I, if I had, it'd blow your mind. The, the Hebrew ritual of marriage. And in fact, you just, everything Messiah said, if I, if I go, I'll come back to you, you know, all that comes from that ceremony. So, uh, they were good as married. That's why Joseph had to divorce Miriam or Mary, uh, because, uh, they were married. They had signed a ketubah. Now, so the Pentecost, talks about that too, but the scripture says that the Lord gives us his Holy Spirit, his Ruach HaKodesh, as a deposit guarantee on our redemption that's forthcoming. It's our ketubah. By the way, during the ketubah process, it was customary 
for the groom to leave his wife with certain gifts. In other words, these are a down payment. These are my, my initial gifts. You're going to get a whole lot more gifts when we get married, but this is the initial gift. The Scripture says that the Lord left us with gifts. Amen. Uh, the Feast of Rosh Hashanah, which is called the Feast of Trumpets, speaks of the rapture of the believers. During the Feast of Rosh Hashanah, there are a series of trumpet blasts that are sounded on the shofar. Kind of remiss, I should have brought my shofar tonight. I didn't really think about that. I didn't think to ask Pastor Ron if that was okay, but we could have given a blast on the shofar. You do that at the feast anyway. Um, but the last uh, shofar blast, there's a series of, uh, well, traditionally you're supposed to blow the shofar a hundred times all together during the Feast of Trumpets. But the last blast is called the Takiyah Hagadola, which in Hebrew means the last great trumpet blast. And you, you the trumpeteer... Uh, blows. You may ever seen a shofar, the big ram's horn thing. You ever seen that? And again, we have one in our congregation. I use it all the time. But the trumpeteer is to take as much air in his lungs as he can and blow the trumpet as long as he possibly can. And is this great big trumpet blast? And it's the last trump of Rosh Hashanah. And of course, Paul said that the last trumpet, the dead in Christ shall rise. And so. It speaks of our catching away. The Feast of Yom Kippur speaks of the great white throne judgment of the believers. Even in Judaism, it's understood that it's on Yom Kippur that the, that the Lord opens his book. And the very last service that is done on Yom Kippur is called the Nefilah, which means the closing of the gate. If you have not repented, if you have not sought the forgiveness of Adonai and received forgiveness of Adonai by the Nechilah service, then that means the Lord has closed the gate. There is no other opportunity. How many of you know that Messiah talked about the ten virgins? And he said the virgins that had their oil, they went in and the Messiah shut the door. The ones who were not prepared came and said, let us in. And he says, I don't know you. It speaks of the great white throne judgment. Now, now we come to Sukkot. What does Sukkot speak of? Sukkot speaks of the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the Lamb. By the way, a little bit about the wedding ceremony thing. That when the bridegroom was released by his father to go get his bride, which it was customary if he was asked, when are you going to go get your bride? He would say, no man knows but my father. Why? Because he was building a room onto his father's house. And his father was customary. The father had to inspect the room and make sure it was prepared enough for him to go get his bride. But meanwhile, the bridegroom, or excuse me, the bride stayed in her village, wherever it was, and she had her bags packed and she was ready to go because she never knew exactly when the bridegroom was going to come. And so when the father finally tells the bridegroom, go and get your bride, he goes with all his friends, all the groomsmen, and some are blowing the shofars and they're, you know, dancing with the tambourines. And it was customary to, to, to uh, step foot in the village and cry out with a great shout and with a blast of the shofar, behold, the bridegroom cometh. And the woman would grab her things and rush out with her bridesmaids and and get in with her for their groom, so to speak. And she he would go and it's called the presentation. The bridegroom would take and present the bride to the father. Now, in Jewish culture, the bride is not honored like we honor the bride in our culture. You know, she's so beautiful. No, it's everything is about the bridegroom. And the reason it's all about the bridegroom is because it's because of his gifts, because of his generosity that he has made the bride so beautiful. And so he is honored and elevated because of the beauty of the bride that he 
is responsible for. And so this speaks to that time. And of course, that's where the wedding would be consummated. And that's where the, the wedding supper would happen. And so this speaks of, Sukkot speaks of the wedding supper of the lamb of the believers. This is the completion. This is where everything you see the cycle. It all comes into fruition here at the festival of Sukkot. And the Jewish people, by the way, understand this to be true. In fact, for time's sake, we won't uh, read this portion of Scripture, but you can read the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 29, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. It talks about all of the sacrifices that are, are done or to be done during the Feast of Sukkot. Uh, it speaks about the reality that the Lord said, I want you to bring young bulls uh, to this Sukkot sacrifice. And so that's very significant because the sages, the Jewish sages understood that these young bulls represented providing protection for the Gentile nations. And there were a total of 70 bulls altogether, which is also very important because Genesis chapter 10 talks about the original 70 nations. And so Judaism understands that all nations of the earth, other than Israel, came from 70 core nations. And so during the Feast of Sukkot, Israel sees himself as uh, being equipped and called by God to be a priest, a mediator on behalf of all the nations. And even though the nations don't realize that uh, they even need God, there is still Israel on the Feast of Sukkot interceding for the nations as God's anointed priests. In fact, uh, Solomon uh, dedicates the temple during the festival of Sukkot in 1 Kings chapter 8. And beginning in verse 41, during his long prayer of inauguration, he asked the Lord, Lord, when somebody who's not of Israel, when somebody of the nations recognizes that you're the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that you're the only God. And they come to this place to pray towards this temple and to seek your face. Adonai, receive and honor their prayer. Here's King Solomon interceding on behalf of the nations when during this festival of Sukkot. In fact, I'll have you know that that uh, rabbis today understand that the Messianic kingdom has arrived when Gentile believers begin to take upon themselves the yoke of heaven, when they begin to understand the feast, when they begin to participate in the feast. And it's, it's already starting to happen now. The rabbis are starting to notice that there are Gentile, non-Jewish by birth, people who believe in Yeshua yet are beginning to understand the feast of the Lord, beginning to incorporate these things in their life. And it's beginning to be a witness to them because they understand that when the messianic kingdom comes, it's going to be it's going to be because the Gentile believers are coming into the Torah of Adonai. And so we've already begun to experience that as we talk to Jewish people about the fact that we keep the feast and so forth. And our congregation is made up of Jews and Gentiles. They, they say, oh, they really, you know, why you do that? You believe in Yeshua, but you keep the feast, really? So it's a testimony to them. I believe that's what the Apostle Paul was speaking at, by the way, when he says that we're going to make them jealous uh, because it's uh, I believe that's impactful. The Midrash declares that if the nations, the Midrash, by the way, is a Jewish writing. Uh, the Midrash declares that if the nations had realized how much they benefited from these offerings, 
that Israel was doing for them. In, in essence, they're providing uh, redemptive offerings on behalf of nations and interceding for, to God to forgive them, to protect them, and to draw them in. This was Israel's mission, by the way, to be a light to the nations. It still is, really, uh, their, their calling. Uh, and we as believers are grafted into Israel. And so that's why the Lord says, don't put your light under a bush or a table, etc. But it says, if the nations had realized how much they benefited from these offerings, they would have sent legions to surround Jerusalem and guard it from attack. I was reminded of the scripture when I read about this so long ago. It reminds me of the scripture from Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that says, while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. See, the nations are out there just doing their own thing. While they're still wrapped up in their revelry, there is Israel interceding for them. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While they were still uh, in paganism, bulls were being offered up. Blood was being spilt for them. And it speaks of Messiah that even though we were lost in our revelry, lost in our paganism, lost in our atheism, lost in our agnosticism, there was still Messiah's blood spilt for us. It's a powerful, powerful. And if we had known what the Lord was doing for us, how, how much sooner would he, we have responded to the things of the Lord? The number of bulls is 13 on the first day and decreases by one each day. And the sages understood that this symbolized that the power of the unbeliever will grow progressively weaker over time until all nations accept Adonai's dominion under the spiritual leadership of Israel. And of course, that's exactly what is taking place in these end times that people and what takes place every day, that people's unbelief, they get weaker and weaker and weaker until finally they submit to the Lord under the spiritual headship of the Messiah of Israel. Philippians chapter two, verses 10 through 11 speaks about the reality that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Messiah Yeshua is Lord of all. That's a reality. Everyone will. That will happen. Incidentally, there were lambs that were offered each day. The powerful bull represented the nations. The gentle lamb uh, here is understood to represent Israel. The interesting thing is that there are a total of 98 lambs that are offered during the festival of Sukkot, which represent Israel. And these 98 lambs uh, happen to correspond to the 98 curses that were spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, two thirds of the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28 or chapter, excuse me, two thirds of Deuteronomy chapter 28 uh, are curses. There's only 14 verses of blessings and the rest are curses. And uh, it, the sages understood that that these lambs are being offered up. were being offered up to to uh, the blood was being spilt to redeem Israel from the curses spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And of course, Messiah's blood redeems us from the curse of the law. Amen. Now, quickly want to speak about the another point in here. If you'll turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. Zechariah, chapter 14 and verse 16. Are we am I doing good? Are you all still with me here? All right. Praise the Lord. I pray that this is blessing and strengthening your faith and understanding of what the Lord is doing. Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 16. They've. Remove Zechariah from my Bible. There it is. This is this is the true end time feast. And we'll see something very, very peculiar here. It says in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16, it says here that then 
the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples on the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, then the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. Now, that's pretty exciting and pretty interesting that we as believers, every one of us in the messianic reign of, of, of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we will all go to Jerusalem year after year to celebrate the festival of Sukkot, the festival of tabernacles. That uh, verse 9 in the same chapter says that the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. That's why this feast is called the Feast of Ingathering, because just as we in the natural gather our fruit and put them in the sukkah, God gathers the nations and brings them into his great covering. In fact, according to Jewish legend, it's just a legend, but according to Jewish legend, I thought it was worth sharing anyway, that God is going to slay Leviathan and he's going to make a sukkah a booth, a tabernacle out of his hide, and there he's going to put the righteous. And I thought that was just, it's a legend, but I thought it was worth sharing because uh, the Lord is going to slay that devil of the the, the, the old serpent. And uh, amen. And we're going to have final victory over over Satan and all of his angels. I want to quickly cover, because I think I'm, I'm a little bit running short of time, I want to talk about Hoshana Rabbah, the great and final day of the feast. But I want to mention to you that... Um, Many historians, and I happen to agree with them, believe that Messiah was not actually born during the month of December as we uh, traditionally celebrate, that, but he was actually born during the Feast of Tabernacles. And I happen to believe that for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that God is a God of pattern. And when he first came in the flesh, he came and made his tabernacle with us. And when he comes again to, to live with us for all eternity, he will come during the same season. By the way, I should mention that everything else Messiah did, the Feast of Pentecost, the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, being raised from the tomb, he did that on the feast days, on the exact day, at the exact time. So the Lord has always fulfilled his festivals precisely when they happened. Messiah walked out of the tomb on the day of first fruits. He was crucified on the cross the day that the, the lamb was being slain at the very moment that, that the high priest was standing up with his arms outstretched, the high priest in the temple with his arms outstretched just like this and said, it is finished. When the final lamb was slain on, on Passover, the high priest said, it is finished. And he sat down. The Bible says at that very hour, Messiah Yeshua lifted up his voice on the cross and said, Negmar. He said, it is finished. And Ephesians says he went and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The Bible, the history teaches us that when the people would see the high priest sit down, they knew it was done. Redemption had been purchased. When we see the right, the, the Lord sitting at the right hand of the Father, we know it's finished. There doesn't need to be another lamb slain. There doesn't need to be another goat brought to the altar. Not another bull. Everything has been wrapped up in the precious blood of our Messiah. Amen. And so he's going to fulfill his feast and he's going to do it every time on time. John chapter one and verse 14 speaks about the fact that the Lord came and this this word made flesh came and made his dwelling with us. This word dwelling 
is the Greek word skenuo, skenuo, which means tabernacle. It, it actually is a verb. It means to fix one shelter, tent, or tabernacle. When Messiah Yeshua came the first time in the flesh, he made his tabernacle with us. He came and made his temporary dwelling with us. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3 says that when the new Jerusalem comes down, the new heaven and the earth comes down, it says that God is going to come and dwell with us. That's the same Greek word. He's going to come and fix his tabernacle with us yet again in that time. God came and made his tabernacle with us for three years on the earth, and he's going to come for all eternity in the end times and make his tabernacle with every one of us for all for all eternity. We'll need no sun because he'll be the radiant glow. We'll need no warmth because he'll be the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, just like he was in the desert place. We'll need no substance because he'll be the one that provides manna for us. Hallelujah. Now, finally, I want to talk about Hoshana Rabbah, the last and great day of the feast. This is I got to quickly cover this. We got a few minutes here. The. Libation ceremony, this is so important. The libation ceremony was a really important uh, uh, festival part of Sukkot. Seven days in a row, the high priest would take a golden pitcher, would go to the pool of Siloam, would draw water out, would quote from Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3, with joy shall I draw water from the wells of salvation. He would go to the altar. They would dance around the altar one time and pour the water out along the along the altar. There would be much, much uh, singing and much joy. On the seventh day, it was a little bit different. They would go and they would do the same thing. They would draw water with the golden pitcher from the well of uh, from the pool of Siloam. And they would say with joy, I will draw water from the wells of salvation. They would go to the altar and they would go around the altar seven times and the people would be waving the lulav, waving the branches. They would be singing great joy. Uh, the Jewish historians and the and, uh, Mishnah say that if one had never seen this procession, they'd never seen real joy. They were joyful and they were crying out in Hebrew, Ana hashlichana, Ana hoshiana, which means Lord prosper now, Lord save now. And at that moment, Jesus says this. Let's turn to the book of chapter, uh, book of John, chapter seven and look at verse thirty seven. At that very moment, it says that the Lord stands up and makes a prophetic declaration. John, chapter seven, beginning in verse thirty seven. It says on the last and greatest day of the feast, that's Hoshana Rabbah. Yeshua stood up and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Yeshua had not yet been glorified. At the very moment that they're pouring out this living water, they believe, by the way, that the pool of Siloam contained living water. That at the moment they were pouring out this Mayim Chaim, they were crying, Ana Hashlikana, Ana Hoshiana. And Yeshua stands up and says, I am the living water. And by the way, when the Lord drew, when they drew that 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 water and they quoted that verse from Isaiah chapter twelve and verse three, it says, "With joy I shall draw water from the wells of salvation." Salvation in Hebrew is guess what? Yeshua. 
I will draw water from the wells of Yeshua. That's what it says in Hebrew. And Yeshua stands up and says, I am that well. Also, what this what would happen during this uh, time is in the court of the woman, women in the temple, they would light a gigantic menorah. Sukkot is also known, by the way, as the festival of life. I should have mentioned that for this very reason. The Mishnah, again, a Jewish writing, uh, records that there were four golden menorahs with four golden bowls at the top of each and four ladders leading up to the bowls. Four strong young priests, Kohanim, would climb up with pitchers, each holding nine liters of oil, and they would pour it into the bowls. These were 75 feet high. From the worn out drawers and girdles and undergarments of the Kohanim, they would make giant wicks. And when they then they would light the menorah. And there was it says here that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up by the light of the Beit HaShoeva, by the great menorah. Pious men and men of good deeds would dance around the menorahs with lit torches in their hands, singing songs of praise while the Levites played harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets and innumerable other musical instruments. Can you imagine the incredible festivity as they're just worshiping with these torches and playing these instruments with an incredible concert and this gigantic 75-foot-high menorah is glowing and literally every courtyard in Jerusalem is receiving the radiant light of this menorah. Now, let's look at the book of John chapter 8 and verse 12. It says, When Yeshua spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, we understand now when Messiah says these things, what was going on literally in the background. That people have celebrated the festival of lights and they've seen this giant menorah glowing and glistening and lighting up the entire city. And Messiah says, I am the light of the world. And if you come to me, you will have no darkness, but you have the light of heaven. Amen. So this is the festival of Sukkot, and this is how Messiah Yeshua fulfills it, points to it. And um, it's how I believe we as believers can walk in it and at least take ownership to one degree or the, or the next and begin to celebrate this time as our season of great joy and understanding that the Lord has saved us. He has washed us by His precious blood. We've sown in tears and now we reap in songs of joy. And we go to Him, the Mayim Chaim, the living water. We go to Him, the great and wonderful light of all creation. Amen. Thank you very much. That is the lesson for tonight. And thank you so much, Pastor Ron, for having me. I want us to have time for some questions here. To kind of fly through, so you probably have a, a few questions, maybe. Great, great insight. Thank you. So let's just open it up for a few minutes for take advantage of the opportunity. We don't have a rabbi here today, so Dr. Ruth, what will you want to do? Mm-hmm. I think Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3, where it says, "With joy." I will draw water from the wells of salvation. It's a common question that Jewish people ask is why, if, if, if Yeshua, if Jesus is the Messiah, then, then how come it's not spoken about in the scripture? And you can say, well, first of all, his, his actual name is Yeshua. We translate it Jesus, but it actually it's Yeshua. And you can take them that verse and show them in, in 
in the scripture that it says, With joy I shall draw water from the wells of Yeshua. And then uh, um, also in Isaiah, uh, one scripture just comes to mind about the, the woman shall give birth to a child and shall call his name uh, Everlasting Father, Living Mighty God, uh, Counselor, Wonderful. It says that and that's very important because most uh, most Jewish translations of the Bible, uh, English translations for Jewish Bibles, uh, twist that a little bit and say that he shall be like, that the child should be like. But in the literal Hebrew, it says that he shall be called. Uh, 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 I just went blank on the Hebrew. But he shall be called the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And those are all titles of God himself. So that's the answer to question. And, and you might take him back to Zechariah 14 and understand that, that um, you know, this is a, a time when the Lord is going to come and make his kingdom over all the earth. Isaiah 12, verse 3, that with joy I shall draw water from the wells of Yeshua, salvation. The one after that is, uh, that's from the book of Isaiah, is that eight, chapter 8, verse 9, uh, it's about the woman, if he shall be called Prince of Peace, Mighty God. I think that's eight nine, if I remember correctly. It's almost a, it's a sword drill now. You got me on sword drill. Yes, sir. No, actually, I was. I come from a, an assimilated Jewish family, so our family is or believers. And uh, I'm a, I'm Sephardic, uh, Jewish, uh, French, and Spanish. My wife is Jewish from Ashkenazi, from the uh, Eastern Europe. But we come from Christian backgrounds. The, the way the Lord reached us or through this is that um, we've been married for 15 years, a little over 15 years now. And when I when we got married, my wife was already steeped in this understanding of Hebrew roots, and the Lord uh, just opened my understanding to it and. I began to discover that uh, actually, you know, I've all this Jewish heritage stuff is kind of making sense now. So, right. Uh, talking about non-believing Jews? Yeah. Well, they have an understanding. See, yes, I would say that the principles of everything I've shared about the festivals are there in Judaism. They just don't see the correlation between uh, that and Messiah having fulfilled that aspect of it. I'm of the opinion that uh, um, that the 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 Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, and the Hebrew Scriptures dovetail perfectly together. And actually, when I believe that when believers begin to understand the true meaning of some of the uh, Brit Habashah, the New Testament passages, it begins to make perfect sense. And it's not, I don't believe that, I have not yet found it, and I don't believe that they are conflicting. And frankly, I've been brought up both ways. I've been brought, I was brought up uh, uh, thinking that the old is gone and the new has come, so to speak, you know, and there was no, it wasn't relevant. And it wasn't until I went back to that and said, well, let's look and see, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we that's when we begin to see those kinds of things. Yes, sir. Uh, I'll give you a, all a website that's really phenomenal. And I, I use it actually quite a bit for downloads and different things. 
Uh, it's called uh, like a book, you mean, form or? Oh, uh, I don't have it written down. I'm sorry, I don't have it with me. <clears throat> but the uh, the website is is Hebrew Hebrew uh, the number four Hebrew for Christians dot com Hebrew for Christians dot com. Uh, the website name is kind of misleading. It's actually not about Hebrew. I mean, it is. I mean, you can go there and study Hebrew, but Hebrew for the number four Christians.com. It, it's, that's probably the, the best resource. There's a number of resources out there probably I can give, but, but that's probably the best resource, uh, for understanding some of these things. And, um, it's, it's really, it's really great. And it keep, it's very balanced. You know, we're very balanced about understanding. You know, we understand in our congregation, for instance, that uh, that salvation is through is by grace alone through faith in Messiah Yeshua. Nothing can save us except the blood of Messiah. There's there's no other righteousness that can be gained or earned. Um, we don't we are Torah observant, but like we say, we don't keep the Torah in order to be saved. We keep the Torah because we are saved, and that's a key distinction. And so, um, anyway, I think it's a good resource. Who else has an exciting question? Uh, Shemini Atzeret. And so, let me give you, I always have to look at my, my notes. Let's see if I have it written down in here. Uh, I don't think I do actually. Shemini Atzeret. S-H-I-M-I-N-I-E. Atzeret, uh, be the Aleph Zavi. It's, uh, A T Z. E R E T. I believe, I believe that's a close uh, transliteration. Is not an exact science, but it's more phonetic than anything. Shemaniah Zeret. It's the eighth day of the feast, the day of new beginnings. Also happens to be the day that in Judaism is celebrated what's called Simchat Torah, which means rejoicing in the Torah. We we might say rejoicing in the Word. It's a beautiful feast. That's actually a feast. Well, it's a it's a it's an extra biblical feast, Simchat Torah. In synagogues, it's celebrated, and, and it's, it's beautiful custom. People will take the Torah scroll, and they'll uh, march around the sanctuary in a very joyful procession, and just thank God for His Word. It's really, it's really precious. I think it began around the Middle Ages, uh, but it's uh, actually. Uh, it is towards the end. It's actually the very last day of the festival calendar, calendar year. So uh, next Friday, a week from Friday, is actually the uh, Simchat Torah on this calendar. Mm-hmm. We do. And it's really great for the kids too. What we do is uh, our children get to make little little flags, and they put apples typically on the top of their little flagpole, and they march around the sanctuary with us. And we blow the shofar, and uh, we sing this song. Uh, called Hene Ha Torah, Hene Ha Yeshua, which means uh, behold the Torah, behold Yeshua, because Yeshua is the Word of God made flesh. He's the Torah made flesh. And so what I like about it, it's an extra biblical feast, it's not a commandment, but what I like about it is it actually teaches our children and our adults to honor and to love the Word of God. In fact, in a Jewish home, by the way, when the little children are being raised up, the very first thing they learn is the Shema, as I mentioned earlier. 
which is a commandment. It's a word of God. Then as they learn to speak the Shema, a mom and dad will put a little dab of honey on their tongue. And it begins to make their neurosensors associate sweet honey with the word of God. And so the word of God is always sweet to them. And I think we could go a long way in Christian churches of doing that with our children. All right, one more question. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. We're, a, um, uh, we're, a, we're, we're what you call a disintegration. Um, I refer I refer to it uh, I refer to it as uh, as a congregation. I refrain from using the term synagogue, although we can actually technically, Pastor Ron, your church here could be a synagogue. A synagogue is a Greek word that means place of assembly. And actually, in the New Testament, every time it referred to the place, the physical place where believers gathered, it was a synagogue. Uh, but uh, I, I I refer to it more of uh, we just use the word congregation. There's we kind of incorporate some of the Jewish liturgy, the liturgy that I believe brings life personally. Uh, and but we also have, you know, uh, kind of a blending, you might say, of a traditional you know church. But um, uh, I once joked and told somebody that uh, we are a conservative, reform, orthodox, spirit filled, southern messianic congregation. <laughs> Which, which at the acronyms are Cross MC, so we thought it worked out really great. It's Heritage Fellowship. In Hebrew, it's Kehilat Morshah, which means, uh, Heritage Congregation. So, that's, that's, yeah, we kind of have the, you know, Khalids and all that, so it's, uh, it's beautiful, beautiful custom, I think.